Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are here yet again on this thrillingly chilly October evening, night, time. (laughs) (laughs) It's thrills and chills and it's the most spooktacular time of the year. Everybody's having a good time. Bats are in fashion. Just kidding. They're always in fashion. But especially this time of year, nobody looks at you funny when you got some bats going on did you know that a bat is the fastest flying animal of all even faster than a peregrine falcon in a stoop okay 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 see there's a distinction that needs to be made the peregrine falcon is the fastest thing that falls with style a la buzz lightyear (laughs) but flying level with the wings flap that's a bat Man, when you think that those old skin wings can't get any cooler, there they go. I know. Their wings are skin. They see with their ears. How cool can you get and for an going, animal? I know. And they're going like over 100 miles per hour. Stop it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Speedies. Um, oh, man. That's it's that time of year. Spectacular. <laughs> Tis the month of the speedy bats. The month of the bat is upon us. Um, but we are here not to talk about bats, though maybe to talk about bats a little bit. Um, we are here to talk about poetry. It's close talking that podcast where we Woo! read a poem, talk about a poem, and read the poem again. Today, as always, we've got a great one for you. It is called We Are Going by Udru Nunuckle, who is an indigenous Australian poet. You know, one of those lives with a lot of kind of depressing firsts in it. gosh she was the first aboriginal australian to publish a poetry book i believe the first aboriginal woman aboriginal australian woman to publish a book at all and those were both in 1964 with the book that bears the name of the poem we will be discussing we are going she was a poet and an activist 
and was a major player in the indigenous rights movement in Australia. And just as one kind of indication of that timeline, she was born in 1920 and she died in 1993. Yeah, the indigenous rights movement was kind of similar to the American civil rights movement. It was a lot of work was being done in the 60s and particularly into the 70s. Did you know about the white Australia policy, Connor? I think I must have seen it and I just flinched because I was like, that can't. Sounds bad. Yeah, it just <laughs> it like really doesn't bad. sound like a good one. It's not. It's a very bad one, in fact. Um, And it's exactly what it sounds like. It was an immigration policy that blocked non-European immigration to Australia. And if you're familiar with how globes work, Australia is near a lot of non-European countries where folks might want to move to Australia. They couldn't because of this very racist policy, which was in place until 1973. And that is super recent uh, and very bad. So... Um, I think that also offers a little bit of context of what of like what kind of environment was this poem coming into and what was the book coming into because it comes out fully nine years before that. Udru Nunakol was honored as a member of the Order of the British Empire in 1970, an honor which lasted a full 17 years before she returned the honor, quote unquote, <laughs> air quotes honor, um, in protest <laughs> of the bicentennial. In Australia, which was happening in 1987-88. So she was a committed activist because that's also getting into sort of her later years. As I said, she died in 1993. So taking it to the streets all throughout her life. Um, And now her, her writing, my understanding of kind of where her writing fits into like the tapestry of Australian writers and just, you know, is she a name that people in Australia learn? I think yes. I think she's kind of uh, installed herself in through her consistent like work, both as a writer and as an activist, has become like a major Australian historical and literary figure. Her work kind of makes its way into the equivalent of like high school curriculums in the United States. Um, you can find I found one online that featured uh, like a unit on her poetry, and there is in fact a district named after her in Queensland, which was named after her in 2017. So, wow, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, in her life, she talked about her poetry and her poetic practice a bit and talked particularly about doing poetry that was like in service of activism. And it didn't mean that she wasn't like interested in the literary aspects of poetry, but she was particularly interested in poetry and writing as vehicles for social change. And so, you know, we're going to talk quite a bit about this poem, We Are Going, and all of the various you know, formal stuff that's going on in it, but also just as a writer, she was really interested in um, poetry as a medium to convey certain kinds of, not just feelings, but also messages. And so she has a lot of poems that are uh, really pointed and pretty straightforward. Yeah. And she, um, she was, she was named Kath Walker um, or like born Kathleen Jean Mary Ruska and then was known as Kath Walker until 1988 when she changed her name. Um, and New Knuckle is like also it's the the people that she's of, um, which are, you know, I, I believe like traditional kind of owners, stewards of um, the 
North Stradbroke Island um, or uh, Minjeriba, um, which is like an island that's just kind of right off the coast of Eastern Australia. Uh, the New Knuckle people, along with um, a few other groups, have lived there since, you know, tens of thousands of years. Yeah, Australian history is wild. And we can maybe get more into that after we read the poem. Um. <laughs> I think we definitely will, because it is. I mean, like, yeah, the timeline, it's interesting because the timeline isn't that different from the United States. But I feel like living in the United States, there's often this vague sense that things are maybe better elsewhere on a host of social issues and that isn't necessarily the case it, it was interesting i actually saw that the kwandamuka nation which is the the kind of the nation that the new knuckle and the kind of other groups of the island are a part of kind of signed a um in 2011 the federal court of australia um, sort of officially recognized um, the Kwandamuka nation's rights uh, over, um, you know, the, the traditional lands and islands that they uh, have, have lived on, which is a good thing. And also notable that that happened in 2011. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to note those times. It's a little bit like we've talked about, you know, whereas statements by Lely Long Soldier... Yes. And the uh, the timeline for non-apology apologies from U.S. administrations, uh, you know, very, uh, very difficult history on both sides, according to the <laughs> Obama administration. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get into more of all that stuff. Yeah. We should probably read the poem. Um, <laughs> this is We Are Going by Udru Nunakul. They came into the little town a semi-naked band subdued and silent, all that remained of their tribe. They came here to the place of their old Bora ground, where now the many white men hurry about like ants. Notice of the estate agent reads, rubbish may be tipped here. Now it half covers the traces of the old Bora ring. We are as strangers here now, but the white tribe are the strangers. We belong here. We are of the old ways. We are the corroboree and the Bora ground. We are the old ceremonies, the laws of the elders. We are the wonder tales of dream time, the tribal legends told. We are the past, the hunts and the laughing games, the wandering campfires. We are the lightning bolt over Gafemba Hill, quick and terrible, and the thunderer after him, that loud fellow. We are the quiet daybreak, paling the dark lagoon. We are the shadow ghosts, creeping back as the campfires burn low. We are nature and the past, all the old ways, gone now and scattered. The scrubs are gone the hunting and the laughter. The eagle is gone. The emu and the kangaroo are gone from this place. The bora ring is gone. The corroboree is gone. And we are going. Wow. Yeah. 
so there's a bunch of stuff going on in here. Um, there are a couple of words, I think, to define quickly. Bora or Bora ground. The Bora was like an initiation ceremony and the Bora ground is where that would happen. And the Karabari, which is also mentioned a couple of times, is a dance ceremony. So the Bora ground, the Bora ring, and those are like locations for this initiation ceremony. And the Karabari is another dance-based ceremony, both of which are mentioned. And there are a couple of specific mentions to things like Dreamtime or Thunderer that are allusions to um, indigenous Australian mythology. Um, and like spiritual practices that I think are fairly self-explanatory. And we'll get into them maybe a little bit as we talk about the poem. Along the lines of the timeline quickly before we get into the poem. And so this book comes out in 1964. Udru Nunnuncle lives until 1993. Are you familiar with Kathy Freeman? No. She was an Australian track and field athlete. She was also of indigenous Australian descent. And as you can imagine, her wild success in the world of track and field in the 90s and through the early 2000s became a bit of an issue for some folks, particularly when she was first coming onto the scene and when she was younger. And I thought it was particularly because in 1994, she won at the Commonwealth Games in Canada. And there was a major controversy because she carried both an Australian flag and the indigenous Australian flag with the traditional colors. And that was in 1994 and sparked a lot of outrage from commentators who I will describe as Pierce Morgan-esque <laughs> in their <laughs> foolishness, age, and whiteness combined, um, and also mostly their maleness. Uh -huh. And... Uh, uh -huh. She went on to become like a huge sporting and national sensation. She lit the flame at the 2000 Olympics. Um, she's like a big deal. And she made a point in the Olympics as well of representing the indigenous flag alongside the Australian flag. By that time, it seems like most people had gotten over it because she was who she was. But like a major part of her growing up story was constantly struggling for acceptance and trying to get into races and things all through like the eighties when she was raised, she was born, I think in 73. And so she was like running junior races in the eighties. And there were times when uh, there's one race that she like won and they wouldn't give her the medal because she was not white in like the late eighties. So just putting again, like just in the interest of having a timeline, this comes out in 64 and it is those kind of dubious firsts, but there are these, you know, consistent racist practices towards indigenous Australian people that carry forward. And now we have Ash Barty tennis champion who won Wimbledon this year. And she had a whole, uh, thing inspired by Yvonne Gulagong, who is a former tennis champion, also indigenous uh, Australian, which Ash Barty is also part indigenous Australian. And so there was like a whole tribute that she did is very cool. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Now it's time to rename Margaret Court Arena, Yvonne Gulagong Kali Arena. Let's get it done. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, that's my Australia-based sports ranting. <laughs> Done. Back to the poem. Let's talk about this poem. Oh, man. Mainly, mainly I bring that up just for the timeline sake of it, to keep in mind kind of what's happening and what life is like for folks and why this was Udrun Nunickel's first book. And she wrote many, many more. And she was doing way more activism even after this came out. And like, that's why. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess just like what's going on in the poem, we often do a little play-by-play, little narrative. Narrativo. Um, a narrativo. <laughs> That's um, when you tape the narrative and, you know, watch it back later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, narrativo. <laughs> Nice. Nice one, Jack. Yeah, got him. I got him. <laughs> got him again. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically there's, you know, it's it starts, it's basically it's describing this group, this kind of aboriginal group, this band subdued and silent that comes back to this little town. It's their traditional place you know it's their old bora ground so they're they're coming to their old bora grounds where you know but now it's kind of overtaken by white people um you know it's being developed and you know basically then it kind of turns into this we you know it starts with the they came into the little town um and then it it's kind of like we're strangers here, but they're the real strangers. And it goes into like this kind of declaration of who the we is. But then it's kind of like all these things are gone uh, and we are going. And like one literal way to read that is we are on the way to being gone, you know, in a sense. That's kind of like the very base, basic sense of the of the poem yeah i think that's pretty much the narrative that's yeah i think that's exactly yeah that's that's basically what happens and it is i mean as you noted it's pretty straightforward like it's it's all right there i don't think it takes a lot of you know time or or struggle you know we can use the big a word it's pretty accessible um <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which is, you know, I think this poem proves all of the ways in which that is not necessarily a bad thing, because I think that this is a very effective poem and effective on many levels. And, you know, a poem that rewards close reading and uh, like spending time with it. But it's also a poem that hits pretty hard. If you just read it through even somewhat quickly, you can get a real sense not only of the like subject that the the speaker wants you to deal with, but also you get some emotional sense of what it means. And I think that that is, I think that's kind of an overlooked thing that poetry when done right can be a kind of shortcut to as a form of writing where it can capture uh, substance and emotion together in a really concise way and kind of mobilize both in service of a particular message and I think that that kind of writing doesn't often get as much attention as like really interesting formal flourishes or, you know, really emotionally impactful construction 
I think bringing together all three of those is something that obviously many poets have done and there are many examples of good poems that do it but I think that it doesn't always I don't know it feels to me like there is something about poetry and the concise way that it can do that that is a little bit unique as like why would I choose poetry as the means for this kind of message like if I'm an activist or if I'm you know a person with a message why would I choose poetry the least narrative form the least known at least or conceived of at least as being less straightforward why would i use that form to get a message across or to like do my activism work and i think this is a poem that i find really interesting partially because it makes the argument to me that like actually poetry can be a great choice and there's a reason that it shows up and like a lot of activists are also poets because i think it it does provide that like you can get rid of all the extraneous stuff you don't have to tell a story like there's a pretty direct narrative here i would struggle to call it a full story you could write a short story out of this poem pretty easily and that might be a really cool fun like writing activity for yourself or as a teacher if you have students it would be an interesting writing activity maybe but you don't need to do that a lot of the kind of extra work of story doesn't have to get done to capture the resonant themes and emotions and i like that this poem can do that with like an economy of words and space yeah i i completely agree with all that um i mean i think going off of what you just said about it like the story aspect it's yeah it's not like you know in a in a just sort of like a prose short fiction like all that happens happens in the poem is like the speaker and the you know the band comes to the town and observes what is no longer there and kind of remembers what was there and like reflects on that. In a way, there's no action that like, you know, there's not like a protagonist, uh, even like a collective protagonist that does something that is in conflict that then, you know, has a climactic, you know, the, the kind of tension isn't in the action. Of course, there are sort of lots of, there's, there's conflict um, embedded in the whole poem and there's a dramatic tension that progresses in the poem in a way that's very dynamic, but you're right that it's not, it's not like a short story in that sense. Um, but it does capture this. Um, I think you're right that it, 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 that I think is very helpful in this particular case, especially when, you know, like we're thinking about, you know, the speaker and the subjects of the poem, you know, they've lived on this land forever, basically, you know, tens of thousands of years, the first people to live on the land. As long as there have been people living there. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. They've lived on this land forever. And then (laughs) forever later, (laughs) right? Like in the 1700s, the white Europeans first encounter Australia. um, And, you know, and then basically in the 1780s is when the first like British penal colony uh, is like set up. And, you know, 
then throughout the 1800s, um, more colonies are set up and the kind of, you know, colonial history starts. And that parallels a lot of what happened, you know, uh, in the Americas, like a couple hundred years before, where lots of wars, European settlers killed so many Aboriginal people and disease just like devastated the population. And then also in a similar way, there's a kind of transition at some point to the sort of like dependency relationship where, you know, like in Canada, there have been all these recent discoveries of like the boarding school children uh, who died at the boarding school. And there were this, this horrible system, both in Canada and the U.S., and um, I'm pretty sure also in Australia um, that were basically, it was a kind of cultural genocide. And often as the, the newly found graves are indicating, it was often a literal genocide, but it was kind of like, we are going to erase your, try to erase your entire history and culture as um, from your people and, you know, make you only speak English and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, and then, so like, that's all happening through the 1800s. And then, you know, Ujuru Nunakal is born in 1920. So it's not that long ago at all. Um, and this comes out in 1964. So like, What's being captured here, I think, in this poem that that you're that you are articulating is this kind of both this sense of immense loss, you know, uh, and immense violence, you know, like gone now and scattered. The scrubs are gone, the hunting and the laughter, the eagles, the eagle is gone. The emu and the kangaroo are gone from this place. The boar ring is gone the corroboree is gone and we are going. But then at the same time, it's like the we are going. And this is like one of the things that really was like the first thing that struck me about this poem is like, I read the title and I was like, we are going. And I'm like, okay, like going where? Like, where are you going? Or like, um, and then when you get to the end, it's like clearly one of the, <laughs> the overtone meetings is like, we are on the way to being gone um, because all of these things are gone. But at the same time, it's like we are going, but not yet gone. Um, and it's like, and also the speaker and the band is here, both observing the loss, but also the poem is kind of bringing back the memories of all these things. And, you know, the, that's the kind of the real power of, of, we are the corroboree and the Bora ground. We are the old ceremonies, the laws of the elders. And that, you know, it's this great use of anaphora and that repetition of the we are, we are, we are, that really like is like in the poem for the reality of the poem, it's like, it's there, you know, it's there in the poem. Um, but then, you know, by the end, it's like the sense of loss comes back again and the meaning of going returns from the title and has that kind of 
loss. So the tension is that sort of it's, and I think it's like really good for this articulation of being an indigenous or Aboriginal person in, in your own land that's been colonized where you're still there and the things that are yours are still there, but they're taken over. It's like, it's not a simple, it's not the part where it's the war or like where, where it's like, whose is it? Like we are fighting to figure out, like that could be a story, <laughs> you know, like that could be a feature film. This is like the power dynamics and the conflicts in has sort of been settled in like, the most literal sense, but there remains this haunting kind of that I am doing the speaker, I as the speaker and the we are doing. And that that is the place where the tension is, I think. Yeah, I think I think the way you put it is really right. And it it's it's such a great uh medium for kind of, I don't know, just like evoking and capturing and articulating all of that. Well, and I think what's interesting as well along those lines is I love all of the stuff that this poem is doing exactly along the lines of what you're describing, but I think kind of a fascinating shift, at least in the United States, you know, this did come out in 1964 and we talk about that being very recent, but it's also at this point quite a while ago, um, especially in terms of like literary work and in terms of recognition of native peoples in many different countries. I think there is an interesting extra textual tension with many native writers who are seeking to pull native peoples out of an imagined past. And so, yes, there are these traditional elements that are trying to be erased. And there's a very powerful use in this poem of the anaphora to like reclaim those things and bring them forward. But I think there is also this drive to like imagine native people into the future there's the literal line in here, we are nature and the past, all the old ways. And that line really stuck out to me when I was reading it, along with obviously the end we are going and the title line, because that is something that I feel like has been really pushed against by a lot of native writers of like, don't imagine us as part of the landscape. We're human beings. And yeah, okay, we have been here way longer than you have, but we're not the past. We're also the present and the future. Don't forget that. And Maybe we're the old ways, but we're also the new ways. And like, you know, recommendation from a couple episodes ago, Reservation Dogs, that's something that that series does so well is it really blends a lot of traditional beliefs and practices and, and you know, puts them in conversation with living in the present. There's a character who claims he lives off the land and whatever, but like he's got fast food wrappers all over his house. So like, okay cool story you tell yourself and like yeah he you know he knows various ceremonies and and rituals and things and he does them throughout the series but he also like eats at sonic all the time and that's fine um <laughs> like that's cool too he seems like a you know a, an interesting dude he's got a lot good. going on um you know like um yeah but that aspect of it because like there. I don't know. I think there's something maybe a little bit hopeful in that extra textual tension because like to be doing the work that something like reservation dogs is and okay, we're mixing countries here, but 
to be thinking and writing in a way that is putting such emphasis on the present and the future, it doesn't mean that there isn't still a need for, you know, investigating the past and making claims of presence, but it's almost like the, the way that in the civil rights, the ongoing civil rights struggle in the United States, the kind of contemporary iteration of the I am a man posters that people wore in the civil rights movement years ago, okay, that's still relevant and black personhood is still being fought over, but the new iteration is Black Lives Matter. There is a, like, there's been a, there's, there's been movement in that conversation and I'm not well-versed enough in contemporary indigenous Australian poetry to know where that's moved in that world. But it struck me reading this, that I would imagine this is that kind of foundational work that is calling back to and really putting attention to the fact that like you're on stolen land and you know we were the people who were here for a very long time and we are now vanishing um and like that's awful stop it um but like by doing that kind of foundational work and by taking part in all of that activism it also pushes like you see that change in the in the literature itself and in the kind of culture that gets produced. Yeah, no, definitely. And in the way that like, you know, land like land back has become a kind of new demand, like it's, you know, it's like actually like don't just acknowledge, like give the land back, you know, like restore the right relations um no it's it's very true and and i was thinking about this a little bit where in the poem where like and i've i've just perpetually got the environment and climate on the brain but like yeah um it's hard not to it's all around us (laughs) it's all right i mean i know you're uh... thinking about it more than most you're you're like (laughs) you're deep in it i know but well yeah it's it's become part of sort of part of my job so I'm I'm like kind of having to read about it but I think I've also forced that fate upon myself so um but you know you, you have the evil is the the evil the evil is not gone the eagle is gone uh you know the emu is gone the kangaroo are gone from this place you you, you know that's like talking about these um you know species that have been totally destroyed and like i mean australia i think i told this story in a previous podcast but i edited it out because it was very tangential but we are now actually talking about australia hilarious ecosystem and by hilarious i mean horrific uh british colonizer troubles um they just fucked everything up but basically um with dingoes well yeah oh dingoes big problem steal your baby um big problem wild feral pigs are a problem they attacked Um, shakira did you hear about this what shakira was attacked by pigs in a park in barcelona oh my god i know she and her children and she's fine still has billions of dollars and whatever and she's married to you know mr soccer billionaire guy but like, yeah, Shakira was attacked by wild pigs. That's wild. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. No. Um, I just learned about cassowaries, 
which are incredible and animals that look literally like dinosaurs. Sure do. Um, They're like ostriches. They have a lethal kick with blades for toes. They're super grumpy. Um, Wouldn't you be if you had knife toes? Come on. (laughs) And they're constantly being harassed and attacked by dingoes. So they do not like dogs. Um, (laughs) Words uh, gotten out in the community. Yeah, they're just like, no. Yeah. Um, But interestingly, there was a recent um, bit of research that I stumbled across 20,000 years ago or something. There's evidence that people in Australia raised cassowaries because like kind of as pets or as like for use because apparently cassowaries have a very um quick attachment to the first thing that they see and now the other other stupid white people who came to australia are bringing their other animals and now they're just like messing with these cassowaries that are just grumpy and trying to hang out and little feminist note uh it is the men that sit on the eggs and raise the young the nice. women uh lay their eggs and then they take oh, off my bloody wife's gone off to the shops <laughs> again and i've got to sit on the eggs this is bullshit <laughs> bullshit i tell you she's off running about i don't care for it <laughs> um look up pictures of cassowaries i mean they're incredible i mean they look like they sound like that (laughs) yeah they really do um oh they sit on the eggs all day and the hot sun and my bloody wife's running all about the place i can't stand it they actually can make a boom that's so low you almost can't hear it but (laughs) you can feel it Oh, it's I'm a so boom. ticked off. I'm going to make a bloody boom that everybody can feel and no one can hear. I'm grumpy and I'm just trying to hang out. Blah. Okay, what I was trying to say, the British came, they settled. They did bad things. They were trying to grow sugar because, uh, you know, plantation life, horrible. Uh, there was a beetle that was in Australia already was like, wow. Sugar cane, incredibly tasty. I'm going to eat that up. The British were like, oh, this is so annoying. When you bring a random thing to a place that already has other things, that can be a problem. (laughs) What do we do? Oh, let's bring another new thing called cane toads, which are huge ass toads filled with poison, like literally everywhere. The cane toads did not care for the beetles. They didn't eat the beetles, but they fucking killed everything else. There are billions of cane toads in Australia right now. It is a huge problem. Do not touch that toad. I assume if I saw one, I wouldn't be tempted. But now that you said that, maybe I am. Maybe you are tempted. I don't Don't. know. You told me not to. And now it's like forbidden toad, you know, like a forbidden fruit. It's very sad because the, you know, the native lizards and other animals, they just eat the toads and then they die because it's filled with poison. Um, Jerk toads. And some scientists have been trying to teach the native animals not to eat them. And they made cane toad sausages and they 
they fed them to the animals so that they would have a little bit and be like, oh, I don't like that. And be like, that made me feel bad, but it didn't kill me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I bet the native animals are like, I mean, this isn't great, but you're handing it to me and that seems good. Well, yeah, I mean, they like the sausages. Yeah, I know. Of course they do. Because you yeah. can't just yell at a native lizard like, hey, <laughs> don't eat this giant, slow moving piece of meat. This stupid hunk of meat from far away that we brought to your country. Don't eat it. It's slow and dumb. And there's a, literally billions of them, but don't eat it. And it's like, yeah, I'll hear you, but what if I ate it? What if I just took a little nip? Uh, oh, I'm dead. Fuck. I'm fucked again because I'm dead. Because I ate a fucking toad for the hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't have warned me, lab coat. I did warn you. I told you not to eat. Shut up. Just shut up. I'm a ghost now. I'm a ghost lizard. You're going to have to deal with me for eternity. <laughs> oh. There was a point to all this. I forget what it was. Okay, wait. I might have remembered. Um, <laughs> oh, the line. The eagle is gone. The emu and the kangaroo. So about the past and the present and the future. Yes. We're in climate catastrophe right now we've uh you know things are not going well we're at 1.1 degrees celsius that's already bad we are almost guaranteed to go to 1.5 two is i mean we gotta really change gears and more and more the scientists quote unquote of the world and other people have been like oh um, indigenous peoples around the world have been effectively managing uh, their respective environments quite well. Um, and in fact, there was recent, well, I don't know if it was recent, but um, indigenous people are about 5% of the world's population and they manage 80% about of the world's biodiversity. Oh my God. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it is wild. Um, and so in some ways it's like, we need to make the past, the present, <laughs> like we need to, you know, not like literally go back to the past, but like those indigenous bases of knowledge that have, that are scientific, um, that have been, developed and cultivated over millennia and millennia are incredibly vital and key to <laughs> making sure that the planet remains habitable for everybody. Obviously, there's a bad way that this realization could turn out in which we just try to extract all of that wisdom and then cast people aside or something like that. And I hope that it actually, the recognition also comes with recognition and reparations and return to sovereignty, um, you know, where, where it's due. Um, but it, it, it made me think about that a lot um, in that, you know, this kind of 1964 environmental devastation was, was well-documented, but we weren't quite at the point where we are now in terms of, you know, 
greenhouse gas emissions and all that stuff. Um, so it's interesting reading this poem in, in, in the current context for that. And also very grateful that the last line is we are going and not we are gone, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. And it makes me think of too, this line, you know, we are as strangers here now, but the white tribe are the strangers. And yeah. it's like this, this more and more every day of my life, I, that my own strangerness to the land that <laughs> I am occupying uh, becomes more evident to me. And I think that, that, that line and what it captures in itself is so profound. Um, and that line is also like the turn point in the poem where all of the we's begin. And that's where, mm -hmm. so the poem opens with this, they came into the little town, this like omniscient description. And then it goes into a quotation from the group that arrived in the town. And is that group, I guess we're, we're taken to, believe it is that group speaking in some kind of unified way saying we are as strangers here now but the white tribe are the strangers and then it goes into the list of we's and the other descriptions and then it ends still within that one long quote spoken from the group and we are going which is interesting as well because you also get this sense of like new arrival they came into the little town which sort of gets to these questions of like land back, white replacement, false arguments. Like in this poem, the indigenous Australian folks are the ones who are doing the arriving. And that in itself is a, is an interesting historical reversal. And what does this group do when it arrives? Well, it draws attention back to exactly as you're describing the old ways, other ways of like, engaging with and taking care of the earth whether it is these descriptions of natural phenomena like the thunder and you know we are nature but also in describing the ceremonies the descriptions are of literal physical places where people were interacting with the ground <laughs> and like i think the the repetition of bora ground and corroboree you know, there's, as you pointed out, there's obviously a lot of anaphora in this poem. You might even say anaphora as coping mechanism. <laughs> Got him again. Um, yes. Well, Ocean Vong, shout out for everybody in Vong land. Um, <laughs> but it's all, it's not just the anaphora. There's also these like echoes that are happening outside of the repeated phrases, aside from we are the there's also these ideas that kind of flash up and go away and come back again later in the poem. And I really like the way that that kind of bounces through as well. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to return to that last line, but it's another one where it comes at the beginning because we are going is the title of the poem. If you're reading this in the book, you know, the book is called, we are going, and then that last line comes. And so again, you're getting these like layers and echoes. And it is interesting because on the one hand, it feels like going could also be, if not gone, it could be like, and we are vanishing and we are disappearing and we are leaving. 
any of those words feel like they would fit there. Um, but and we are going is such an interesting choice because I think as you were sort of pointing towards, there's like this element of hopefulness in it because it doesn't have to mean going away. It can also mean going forward. And I think when you have a poem where a group of people arrive at the beginning of it, and then at the end they say, and we are going, I feel like that hopeful element is pretty strong. It's strongly preserved there at the end, which I really like because after all of this, I think you do get a strong dose of the feeling of like, and we're going away, but there is still that undertow of maybe we're just going forward without leaving all of the important things of this place that has, you know, now it has this estate agent sign that says rubbish, maybe tipped here. It's like a literal dumping ground. Great. Um, that like yeah. covers the borrowing, but you also get this sense of we're going maybe towards the future where, you know, we are no longer the strangers here and the white tribe is repositioned as the strangers they always were. Um, but yeah, you're right. That that line does stick out. We are as strangers here now, but the white tribe are the strangers, um, especially because it does have that reversal. Like the the indigenous people are the ones who show up at the beginning. You get that feeling of strangerness. They are the the they that show up. Yeah, no, that that is that's so good and right. And it makes me so for one within that we are, it makes me think about the these two lines a little differently, where the we are the quiet daybreak paling the dark lagoon. We are the shadow ghosts creeping back as the campfires burn low like those um a those lines are beautiful and haunting and vivid um but like i love picturing a dark lagoon and then the day is coming and it's it's paling that um like that's such an interesting way to talk about like a basically a sunrise um and then the shadow ghost creeping back as the campfires burn low, like this kind of end of night or this end of this camp and this returning of these, the shadow ghosts, um, which I, which I think I like was thinking about haunting. And I was like, maybe I'm just pulling that out of thin air. And then I was like, oh, there's literal shadow ghosts here. So uh you got that some somewhere for sure um <laughs> well, and even earlier there is this kind of theme of light right because mm. even right before that we are the lightning bolt another like flash of brilliant illumination in the darkness mm. but even before the daybreak comes in the night there is this flash of light yeah no absolutely um but then to your other point i mean that's so the shift of perspective and the the kind of dis like the kind of distance that's sort of uh between the speaker and the poem at different times and the way that it shifts is really interesting not just with the we but also the we as a as a quotation but then how in the beginning it starts as a they and then i was thinking about it like the way that the they is described in the beginning is also kind of interesting in a like 
Um, like they came into the little town, a semi-naked band, subdued and silent, all that remained of their tribe. I mean, that's like, so for one thing, like subdued and silent is such a grim <laughs> depiction. And then of course the silent band presumably fills the last three quarters of the poem with some non-silence yep um and it's also like the semi-naked band it makes me think a little bit of how of i'm not sure about this but i was just like is this kind of like an intentional play on like stereotypical tropes of like how like a white European would often describe different native peoples, you know, like the semi-naked band that just made me think of like, oh, I'm like reading a National Geographic article from like the 60s or something. Yeah. Um, or probably honestly today. But um, anyway, <laughs> but then like thinking about it in that way, it's like, okay, you have Udru Nunuckle, the speaker, like talking about they but they is really kind of like of her and of the speaker but like that intentional distancing and then the intentional kind of rendering in a like a, like an othering way kind of opening the poem framing the poem in that way is very interesting the the most of the poem being you know, this we, but the we being from the they, because it is this spoken, like it's set off in quotes. It's almost like the reader is supposed to be, you know, not of the band, right? And that you are encountering the band as not of the band, but then that being framed as, as being written from, <laughs> uh you know Udru new knuckle is it's and again it's one of those things where that's like a lot of layers <laughs> and i'm not picking up on all of the nuances there but it's one of those things that's done so it's in this accessible way where you can read it and like a it's like working on you already in a way that you're not quite aware of but it doesn't like hinder your um immediate ability to like understand the meaning or the meanings it almost reminds me of this play that i saw that's really good it's called appropriate it's by brandon jacobs jenkins and he's he's black um but the play is a, a about a white family that is um returning to it's like a big a big house kind of family drama play uh and they're they're the dad dies and the adult kids come to like sell the house and stuff and basically the big moment is they discover in the house um uh like a collection of lynching postcards that their dad must have kept and collected. Oof. And so then they like kind of uh, reckon and don't reckon with 
you know, racism, but it's a very interesting, like, it's a kind of similar, it's not, it's not the same. It's different in a lot of ways, but it's like this sort of the kind of opposed or inverted perspectives where you have like a black writer putting up a white family thinking about racism. Uh, and then, you know, for a <laughs> bourgeois, often very white a theater audience, um, although obviously not entirely. Um, and, you know, here you have like an Aboriginal indigenous Australian poet rendering her own group from the perspective kind of of like maybe a white audience like white uh gaze but then coming back at it um and especially when you think about like okay she's literally the first as you're saying like aboriginal poet to publish a book in australia it doesn't mark the beginning of like her of new knuckle people's like artistic traditions by any sense it's just like but then it's like if that is the first it's like okay my audience probably is going to be a lot of white australians too so the the world of letters <laughs> that she oh. is writing into and thus the kind of audience that she is engaging with um that's actually a, a, a bit of context that i that I hadn't kind of fully appreciated even sort of knowing those facts. Yeah, might have something to do with the way that this poem is positioned. Yeah, it's, uh, Toni Morrison has this great quote where she was, uh, I think talking about maybe Ralph Ellison and um, some other kind of prominent black male authors at the time and how she felt like they were often writing for like a white reader and Toni Morrison was like, I just wanted to write for black readers and like for black communities, basically. There's a and lot I there. think even like the most basic version of that would be like, do you feel like you can write for a white audience that has some level of understanding already? Or are you writing to like the blank slate white audience that doesn't understand the perspective at all? Like obviously the Toni Morrison sort of viewpoint or endpoint is like, yes, that would be great because that's what white authors in the United States have done. They write for, you know, they don't imagine another audience in many cases or traditionally, they just kind of write. And this right. is what writing is and hope people like it. Some people do, some people <laughs> don't, whatever. Yeah. I'm Mark Twain. <laughs> um, I'm going to lose a bunch of money investing in typewriters and other stuff. My cat's named Satan. Anyway. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, he had a bunch of like uh, cats named after different demons and things. Okay. That's actually kind of cool. Anyway, not the point. The point is <laughs> obviously writers should feel, you know, able to write for whatever audience, you know, like write, write what you know for who you want it for. But like, to your point, yeah, you're writing for an audience that maybe has zero context as opposed to even like a bare minimum. And I think that, yeah, the the beginning of this poem does show maybe a little bit of that where it's like, how do I get them in? How do yeah. I? And I think that that's probably part of the reason that 
you know, this poem and other poems of, of hers are used now because they are a good kind of entry point for like high school students to start understanding some of these issues and doing it in a way that's not just a history book. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's kind of like it begins with the perceived, you know, audience expectations and understandings and frames and then sort of subverts that intentionally and it's like yeah no that's that's really interesting shall we read it again i think we shall all right this is we are going by udru nunakul they came into the little town, a semi-naked band, subdued and silent. All that remained of their tribe. They came here, to the place of their old Bora ground, where now the many white men hurry around like ants. Notice of the estate agent reads, rubbish may be tipped here. Now it half covers the traces of the old Bora ring. We are as strangers here now, but the white tribe are the strangers. We belong here. We are of the old ways. We are the corroboree and the Bora ground. We are the old ceremonies, the laws of the elders. We are the wonder tales of dream time, the tribal legends told. We are the past, the hunts and the laughing games the wandering campfires. We are the lightning bolt over Gathemba Hill, quick and terrible, and the thunderer after him, that loud fellow. And we are the quiet daybreak, paling the dark lagoon. We are the shadow ghosts creeping back as the campfires burn low. We are nature and the past, all the old ways gone now and scattered the scrubs are gone the hunting and the laughter the eagle is gone the emu and the kangaroo are gone from this place the bora ring is gone the corroboree is gone and we are going So, Connor. Oh, Jack. Aside from being a wealth of knowledge about <laughs> invasive toads, <laughs> which I'm sure is knowledge you gleaned from reading or watching or listening to something, what have you been reading, watching, listening to uh, during this most spectacular time of the year? You know, Jack, I am so glad that you asked because it is spectacular and um actually relatedly on the topic of climate i the spookiest topic of all (laughs) (laughs) yes getting spookier by the day that topic that can fill us all with existential dread at the mere mention Oh boy. No, I have been reading. Um, I am not done with it yet, but I've been reading. Uh, It's called A People's Green New Deal. Um, It's by 
Max Isle. Um, and it's basically, uh, it's kind of like a response to the Green New Deal and a critique of the Green New Deal. And the basic prem, like the basic thing, I would say that it's trying to uh, come get across is that the Green New Deal, as it's like articulated by AOC and then the kind of progressive left people, is that it's good, but basically it leaves intact imperialism, <laughs> potentially, and that it's ostensibly framed as a national project to be pursued. And when you think about especially the fact that you know, the United States accounts for literally a quarter of historical like uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the 1700s to right now. Uh, and then if you factor in Europe, basically that's half uh, of all, like literally all greenhouse gas emissions, or maybe it's just carbon dioxide emissions at any rate. Um, Either way, super, super cool. Way to go. Very good legacy. Super, super Everybody, cool. You've done yeah. it again. Really, really um, good stuff. And oh God. Oh my we're God. At, yeah. And South America. Hey, I've got a genius idea. Hear me out on this one. Let's build sadness <laughs> boxes out of awful rocks. <laughs> Let's put all the kids in them and keep them there whenever the sun's out. <laughs> But also let's make sure that all of the junk in that place can also come out of it and make us all sicker and also like kill the planet. I'm going to call it the industrial revolution. Are you on board? <laughs> let's, let's rock and roll guys. I think that's going to work out. On the plus side, you're going to end up in like 150 years with a little rectangle in your pocket that contains all of our human knowledge. So trade-offs. Ethical consumption. <laughs> oh God, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and then yeah, you think of Africa and South America combined for about six percent of total carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and then you consider the fact that for both sort of um, geographical reasons, you know, being closer to the equator, people of the global south are going to be and already are much more impacted by climate change. And then when you factor in uh, the wealth disparities, I mean, just look at how the vaccine apartheid vibes going with COVID, the wealthy countries, um, you know, have access to be able to respond to the crises that are and will continue to come from the climate crisis. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, like uh, also true within the United States and other wealthy countries where wealthy people are much, you know, you can, it's like, why don't people evacuate when it's a hurricane? It's like, well, it costs like literally hundreds of dollars to just drive out of your home. And it's like, where are you going to stay? Yeah. We're going to say, oh, yeah, we'll just post up at a hotel that we can totally afford when we can barely make rent because it's the middle of a fucking pandemic. And I'm totally going to have paid time off during this hurricane. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
So, you know, it kind of is like, it's like if, if, if you're trying to think about a, you know, the ideal, just transformative response to the climate crisis, and you're not thinking about on the one hand, um, responsibility for, and on the other hand, impact of the crisis itself. It's in the title itself, you know, it's like engaging with it. So it's like, obviously it's a fruitful site. Um, so, I mean, I read that as not like a complete takedown, but like a constructive critique to push kind of the framework of a Green New Deal in a kind of anti-imperial, anti-colonial, international perspective. Um, but I've, it's also very interesting for its take on agricultural, just like agriculture and also agricultural spaces and also rural spaces and, and kind of argues that a lot of contemporary kind of progressive thinking about climate transition stuff is very focused on cities, which I think is true. I first encountered the book on the, the best titled podcast of all time, Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. Um, <laughs> are we I <laughs> yeah know. i know it's like i feel like instagram tells me that we basically put really fancy branding on a bunch of nonsense so i know hopefully hopefully zoomers can co-capitalism that's like yeah, i think they've got this one yeah i'm i'm rooting for them <laughs> they had a great interview with with um with max isle about the book and then i started reading hey, Connor, the book. you think what? his middle name is repped <laughs> i don't think so it's how, a, how cool would it be if it was though <laughs> that would be cool, that would, be cool. <laughs> um, that would definitely be cool i don't know it, it's it's just been a very good like um sort of reorienting book to read in terms of how am i thinking about like what are the the you know, what are the North stars of things that we should be pushing for basically? Um, and it's also just like, it's, it's one, I don't know. I find it to be like wonderfully written where like it talks about like, what are the kind of possibilities of like what cities and things can look like. And yeah, they, like, it's just like wonderfully written, like, uh, there's sort of these images and visions of like what a kind of just and green city could be like, um, you know, the urban fabric comes to be threaded with wildlife patches of daub, olive and forest green streets ought to be lined with trees, every home and street line boulevard rooftop facade brown lots should become a communist victory garden. Urban agroforestry should fill green spaces currently occupied by that idiocy of post-war American life, the lawn. Um, <laughs> chestnuts, honey locusts, and caribs could replace cereal brought in from elsewhere. Um, urban mushroom gardens should be used to process urban waste. People would love it as they already love parks and community gardens. Um, they do love those things. I know. He talks a lot of times. He's just like, you know, people in cities, they really love their community gardens. Seems like we could make the whole <laughs> city a garden. 
people what would if love we that. had more of the stuff that people liked <laughs> yeah and we didn't get rid of any of the stuff that they also <laughs> like about yeah. being in a city maybe mm-hmm. it can still be a hub of culture and commerce mm-hmm. and also have green space think about it what if we tried that <laughs> we got real crazy with it and we're like hey i noticed you seem pretty into trees <laughs> do more of them what do you say yep so it's been it's been great yeah jack uh you know it turns out you asked me a question and yeah. i actually have a question for you Uh-oh. funnily enough it's the same question. Get out of town. I know. It's almost like we're doing this every time now. It's so fun. I know. It's been over a year of recommendations. Wow. Oh, I that's... know. It's like since like July of last year. <laughs> it's been a while. Oh, my gosh. I know. We've recommended so many things. Time is wow. a flat circle. I know. It's real <laughs> messed up. <laughs> oh, time. Time, time, time. Well, it's time to ask you a question, Jack. Uh-huh. Tell me, what Uh are you reading, listening to, absorbing, watching, et cetera? Well, I've totally forgotten and my mind's gone blank because now all I can think of is the Tom Waits song where he goes, time, 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 whatever. Um, (laughs) Not the point. Uh, Well, in, in getting kind of doing research for this episode and just generally being kind of curious about things, I have spent quite a bit of time on the website for the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies or AIATSIS.gov.au, which is a really great resource for a lot of information about exactly what it sounds like it would have a lot of information about. Particularly, things that I particularly noted about it are that there is an automatic notice that pops up that says Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be aware that this website contains images, voices, and names of deceased persons, which I thought was a very classy thing to build into your website. There is also a feature in it, which is the AIATSIS map of Indigenous Australia, which includes a feature called Whose Country Am I On?, which is where you can look up based on your location, whose country you're on. And I thought that was a really cool feature to build into your website that in addition to having a bunch of historical information uh, contained within it also has these like really useful tools for contemporary thoughtful uh, work and like being. So the AIATSIS.gov.au website, check it out. But that's like about as much information as I can handle these days. I'm just, it's not happening. I can't learn things right now i mean i can i guess but not about things that uh what's the word i'm looking for matter that's right um (laughs) because the world continues and uh that's enough so my (laughs) my other recommendations are obviously it is you know the season of all hallows eve quickly approaching and i watched the new netflix series midnight mass from yes uh which i really enjoyed about a creepy island and Mm. creepy things that happen on the creepy island, very weird events and happenings. Mm. Um, A charismatic new priest comes to town and all of a sudden there's miracles and stuff, but is there a dark source of these miracles? I don't know. From contemporary master of horror, Mike Flanagan, who you might know from the the haunting of Hill House and the haunting of Bly Manor, his other two Netflix mini series. 
Whoa. Um, he's also apparently working on Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, which I'm very excited about. Ooh. So Ooh. yeah, basically there's this weird little island in Maine where like a hundred and some people live and the character you enter through is the son of a family of, they're like everybody in the island is basically a fisherman, uh, except for this priest. Um, but the son of one of the fishermen's coming back, he had gone away and he like, you know, messed up, went to jail, got out of jail. Now he's coming back to the island. And then once you're there, this like charismatic priest shows up and then there's miracles and healing. And all of a sudden everybody's back pain's going away. And this girl who was injured in a hunting accident and couldn't walk, she can walk and stuff now. So, whoa. Yeah. It's got lots of twists and turns that I won't reveal, but uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a good, fun series. It's got stuff in it about like trauma and whatever. So it's not, you know, there, there, it's interesting depth and some fairly considered existential conversations about like life and death and immortality and whatever. Good stuff. Good feelings. Good good thrills a little <laughs> a little gory at times so be Ooh. warned of that okay i didn't think it was like overly you know horror gore but there's some folks who bleed a lot um okay some so bleeding happening. yeah just a bit of bleed a little bit a little bit of bleeding yeah less i think it's less spooky than the haunting of hill house i heard that one was pretty scary there's especially a pre- one part yeah the bent neck girl or bent neck woman something with a car oh yeah <laughs> yeah see that one has way more like tense creepy unsettling moments there's right. more gore in midnight mass i would say i don't see this is the thing i'm not that into any horror stuff but all of these are so strongly about like a different thing and horror is the vehicle to that thing, which I think is, you know, that's what yeah. good horror is. Uh, get out midsummer. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, okay, we get it. You're a snob, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but like that, that's part of why like the, the gross out stuff is not the focus of this, the way perhaps your Saw franchise maybe makes it. Um, or something like it's just a serial killer like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. I haven't seen these films. I'm just culturally I've aware of them. I've seen Saw, no, a few of the Saws, and pretty fun. Um, see, the thing is about me mm. is I like when it's people that are evil doing crazy, gory, sadistic things like in Saw. Mm-hmm. And I don't like as much when it's an evil tooth fairy that is revealed at the end, like the movie Darkness Falls that I had to watch as a kid and I'm mad (laughs) because he was literally revealed to be a tooth fairy. And that was stupid. What about the killer known as the tooth fairy, Francis Dollarhide from Red Dragon? That seems perfectly fine. That okay. seems, yeah, I'm into that. Um, and yeah, I make the exception usually for horror that that has a, you know, a point. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason beyond just the slashing and the yeah, whatever. I just, I can't stand when they explain it. 
I just I hate it. It makes me so mad. And it always happens at the end. And I've, I sometimes I even enjoy the whole ride through it. And I'm like, wow, what a crazy ghost. And then they're like, actually, it wasn't the, a ghost at all. It was a voodoo uncle, uncle pagan. <laughs> Saw a guy was on the floor the whole time and he's got cancer. So he's mean to everybody. Because they should enjoy life more, so he's gonna kill them. Maybe it's just I haven't like, seen Saw. Saw Saw's great. Saw. Well, okay, it's not good. Or well, no, apparently it's great. It's probably not great. It's, it's got the Conestrat and seal of approval. Great movie, <laughs> 10, ten certified fresh on the stratometer. Best movie ever. Uh, <laughs> the best movie of the 21st century, apparently. Why haven't I been watching Saw? You know, it's between Saw and uh, Melancholia for me. That's just those are the two that I just <laughs> fascinating pull on that one. What's what's more canon? I don't know. Might be Saw. Uh, well, which one has a planet colliding with another planet? That's true. See. That was pretty crazy when that happened. <laughs> wild movie. <laughs> yeah. It really takes a turn there in the second half. <laughs> it's like you're sad and then you're sad for a whole new reason. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, well, on the polar opposite end of the spectrum, I have finally jumped on the bandwagon of so many people, apparently, during the last like year and a half. And I have begun watching the British television series Taskmaster. Are you familiar with Taskmaster? No. The brainchild of British comedian Alex Horn, who is also a member of the band The Horn Section. They provide the theme music. Um, oh. Basically, it's a, it's one of these like British panel shows, but it's better than most of them, where they just sit around and it's like a group of comedians who joke about oh. the news or whatever. It's sort of like that, but basically uh, each season is like anywhere from five to eight episodes and it's a panel of five comedians who are assigned to different tasks that are all like random weird things. Like they show up and there's a letter from the taskmaster and the task will be something like there's a basketball and there's a letter on it that says, get the basketball in the hoop. You can't touch the ball with your hands or with anything that would reasonably be considered a glove, but you have to score a basket with it. And so they have to like run around and grab like, rakes and crutches and things and it's all these different like weird That's things to fun. do and all the people who are on the panel are like fun charismatic funny people and it's just a good time and they're all on youtube like Ooh. officially on youtube too it's not even like they're there secretly like taskmaster the show uploaded them all to youtube and they're in a playlist and it's great wow i know my, my Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. 
Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. Thank you.